اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم الحمدللہ رب العالمین الحمدللہ اللذی حدانا لہذا وما کننا لنحددی لولا ان حدان اللہ والصلاة والسلام على اشرف الانبیاء والسید المرسلین والشفی المذنبین سیدنا ونبینا ابی القاسم محمد اللہم صلی علی محمد وآل محمد ثم الصلاة والسلام على أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المدلومين المنتجبين لا سيما مولانا وسيدي صاحب الأسر والزمان روحي وأرواه العالمين له الفداه وأجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنة دائمة على عدائهم الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين أما بعد رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل لقدة من لساني يفقه كولي this evening in this blessed month of Ramadan, we continue in our review of chapter number 47, which is known as Surah Muhammad, named after the final messenger of Allah and the seal of the prophets. And as we continue in this blessed month of Ramadan, we ask Allah to accept our acts of worship. Today being the 15th of the, Ramadan, 15th of the month of Ramadan, or going into the 15th, we're at the halfway point of this blessed month. And so we ask Allah to accept our acts of worship over the last 15 days that we have the opportunity to engage in even greater amounts of worship and with much better quality over the last over the next few weeks uh, this evening as we review chapter 47 on uh, session number 14 we're going to be discussing the Quran specifically so this is a part of the theme that we and the schedule we had sent out um, that yesterday as you'll recall we looked at this verse where Allah says uh, he was posing this question where he says afala yatadabbarun al-Quran am ala qulubin akfaluha do these people, do, not, do they not ponder upon the Qur'an or are there locks upon their hearts? So tonight I want to delve a bit into the Qur'an and the, uh, some of the qualities and characteristics and the importance of this book of Allah. Obviously we know that this month of Ramadan, as Allah says in the Qur'an, شَهْرُ رَمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنزِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنِ That this month of, the month of Ramadan is that month in which we revealed the Qur'an. And this, began, this shows the importance of the month of Ramadan. A, that this is the only time Allah uses the word Ramadan in the Qur'an, the only month out of the year in the Qur'an. And Allah attributes Ramadan to the Qur'an. Obviously, fasting is a component of this month. But the focus or the goal in this month of Ramadan is not just fasting. Keeping away from those eight or nine things that our scholars tell us will break the fast. One of the important goals also is to be able to read the Qur'an as the Prophet mentioned that one recitation of one verse in Ramadan is given the same reward as if one recited the entire Qur'an any other month of the year. And then even more than that is the fact that we need to understand the Qur'an. Now I don't mean to say that we will become commentators of the Qur'an overnight and that we will start writing commentaries and publishing them. No, but at least we know the basics of the Qur'an when we are in difficult situations in life or we're, we're put in, uh, you know, in even people questioning us that we have answers from the Qur'an and we can defend ourselves, defend Islam, defend the Qur'an through the Qur'an. And to recognize also that if we understand the Qur'an as it should be understood that we will not be misled by people who claim to be those who are trying to teach religion to us. So this is the verse we looked at last night. Afala yatadabbarun al-Quran am ala qulubin akfaluha that do they not meditate earnestly on the Quran or are there locks on the hearts? 
And we spoke about this very briefly last night as time was coming to a close, that one of the goals of the Quran, if not one of the prime goals, is to reflect on this book. You know, as I said, we've used it as a book of ceremony for marriage, for divorce, for the funerals, for uh, ornaments in our car, for our screensavers. We've used Quran for so many purposes. I, f I forgot the most important, which is istikharas. You know, we call and we ask the istikhara and we need an answer from the Quran. Right? This is not what the Quran was revealed for, brothers and sisters. As we mentioned, and we know this, that the Prophet didn't go through 23 years of attacks, character assassination, attempted attacks on his life, just so we would call up the Mawlana at 10 o'clock at night and ask for an istikhara. That's not the goal of the Quran. And so we want to look at tonight, what is the goal of this Book of Allah? You know, it's just something very basic about the Quran we might not even recognize, but this word Quran, literally it means to read or recite. When I say I'm reciting the Quran, I'm actually saying I'm reciting the reciting, right? So it's kind of redundant. But the word Quran literally means the, re the reading or the recital or the recitation. This book is a book which is made to be recited. And that's why we have as a community, as Muslims, we have an art called the art of Tajweed, Ilm Tajweed, the science of Tajweed, which allows us to learn how to pronounce every letter accurately, how to elongate, where you elongate, where you stop, where you join letters, this entire science has been perfected by scholars over the last thousand years. Because this book is made to be recited, and there's no doubt when you hear a professional qari of Quran, and there are hundreds online you can listen to, when you hear that recitation, even if you don't know the meaning of the Arabic, it will still move you, it will still have an impact on you. You know, and I've seen this not necessarily with the Qur'an, but I remember, you know, I'll just mention this story that many years ago, one of our friends back in Ontario, he was suffering from MS, multiple sclerosis. He was at home for many years and then they had to move him to a, a long-term care facility because his family couldn't take care of him because of the needs that he had. And I remember that his wife asked us for a copy of Dua Joshin Al-Kabir. And at that time, this is before MP3s, you know, and so it was on a cassette tape. And we gave her the cassette tape, and he would play it in, with headphones on in the hospital. And one day, the headphones broke, the wire or something broke. But the, 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 the Walkman or the tape player, it had a built-in speaker. So one day, he, she wasn't there, so he obviously unplugged the headphones, and he had it playing without headphones. So the entire room, however many people were in the room, and then down the hallway, they could hear this melodious recitation of, of Dua Joshin al-Kabir. One day the wife came, or the next day the wife comes, and she hears the Dua being played through the whole hall. And she got a bit embarrassed, or you know, um, because you know, she thought this was disturbing the other patients in the long-term care facility. She went to turn it off, and the nurse actually said, no, keep it on. The patients are non-Muslim, they don't understand, but they say that they're feeling calm by hearing this recitation. That was Dua Joshin al-Kabir, a beautiful dua that Angel Jibra'il taught to our, our beloved Prophet in the middle of a war. And if that could have a beautiful impact on people in a long-term care facility who had no idea of the meaning, and this is a true story, this is what I told you, is a true story that happened. If that could have an impact, imagine what the Quran can do to people. If you look at history of Islam, 
People converted to Islam just hearing the ayat of the Quran. In fact, when Rasulullah would be in Mecca in those early 13 years and he would read Quran right near Masjid al-Haram, the Quraysh would tell others, when you go to do your tawaf, because the Quraysh and the, the, the mushrik did tawaf as well, they would tell one another, put cotton buds in your ear so that you don't hear the words of the, of the Prophet, of Muhammad. Now, if the Quran didn't have an impact, why would they tell one another to put cotton in their ears? Because they knew that book could transform you. You could hear it and fall in love with the words and, and come into the religion of Islam. So this is a book that is read, it is recited, and that's why even Allah says, وَرَتَّلْنَاهُ تَرَتِيلَ And many other ayat, Allah tells us to read the Qur'an in a unique way. And obviously theologically, we, when we talk about the Qur'an, we don't call it the recital, right? It's published as Al-Qur'an, as the Qur'an. We recognize it, recognize it as the word of Allah that was revealed to the Prophet through the angel Jibra'il over the course of his 23 years of his mission in Mecca and in, Medina, in the city of Medina. The longest verse in the Quran, the longest surah first of all is Surah Al-Baqarah as we know, chapter number 2, 286 verses. And interestingly enough, the longest verse of the longest surah is in also Surah Baqarah, two, verse 282. And if you look at the, the, this is the Uthman Taha, the official script of Quran that Muslims around the world use, it takes up an entire page. But the interesting thing about it is not the length of the verse, is the content. It doesn't talk about salat, about praying, it doesn't talk about fasting, nothing about hajj, nothing about zakat or khums or charity or goodness to your parents or your neighbors. The longest verse of the Quran deals with business transactions. When two people get together to borrow money or write a, or have a business, some kind of a contract, some kind of an agreement between people, the longest verse of the Quran instructs Muslims to write that contract down. To ensure that whenever you enter into a business or any kind of deal with somebody, you write your contract down and you have witnesses. That is so interesting if you think about it, right? Given the fact, okay, fine, that the time of, of Mecca was a commerce, it was a, a society of trade and commerce and business, maybe from that perspective, but the fact that the longest verse of the Quran doesn't speak anything about praying or fasting or anything, it's all about business, about money. Right? Because more than anything in this world, the one thing that can destroy friendships, can destroy families, can destroy community members, is finance, is money. How many times I'm sure we've seen two siblings get in a fight, mother or father pass away, there's no will, inheritance, they fight over money. Two community members open a business in partnership, they don't have agreements in place, one takes too much money or one takes the business in, a, in another way and they split amongst one another. Because business, economics, finance, this plays such a large role in human life, maybe that's why Allah has recognized that this is what humans need. Muslims, you need to know when you get into business, that things need to be documented, there need to be witnesses, there need to be a paper trail of whatever is going on in life. And so I find that interesting as a unique fact of the Qur'an, that Allah would put emphasis on this area other than anything else that He could have emphasized upon. What is the Qur'an made of? I don't mean paper and, and, and you know, ink, obviously. I mean, what is the spiritual makeup of the Qur'an? What are the ayat of the Qur'an? 
you know, we have this book in front of us that we're reading every night. We have it at home. We have it on our apps. But what is the content of the Quran about? What, is the, what are the things that Allah speaks about? We can really summarize it into these five categories. Obviously, we could go a bit more granular and look at every area. But the largest chunk of the Quran, about 30% or so, is about Tawheed, about knowing Allah. Almost 1900 verses out of the 6,200 some odd verses of the Quran speak about Allah. Because again, this is coming down to people, especially in Mecca, who had no concept of one God. They had multiple gods. Today as well, you have people out there who believe in multiple gods. And so the Quran needed to stress on the fact of knowing Allah, establishing the fundamental, the fundamental basis of Tawheed within our lives. Once we can recognize God when we know who God is, from there everything else can become, you know, it'll fall into place. Many times we wonder why our youth aren't devoted to Islam. One of the reasons is that they don't know God. They know the musicians out there, they know the sports personalities, they know the TV stars, the Hollywood stars, and so they can follow them easily because they know them, but they don't know Allah. You know, when you look at our madrasa syllabuses, I don't know about here, but other communities as I've seen, Tawheed is just a few pages. It's not a detailed discussion on, on what Allah is or who Allah is or how He functions. It's very, it's very cursory glance we talk about God. From there, the next largest subject matter of the Quran, about 26%, is about death, resurrection, the hereafter. Again, this was an area that the polytheists had, a, had problem believing. And even if they believed in it, they didn't believe in resurrection as a physical resurrection. And so Allah had to bring verse after verse, as we've seen in the previous sessions, that talk about Jannah, about paradise, about hell, about the punishments, about the fact that you will be brought back to life and you will account for your actions, whatever you did in this world. To the point where Allah says, Even an Adam's weight of good, the smallest act of good that you do on this earth, you will, be a reward, you will be rewarded for it. You will get some recompense in the world to come. You know, every act of evil that you do, as small as you think it is, it's a small sin I did. You will be you know, punished for it. If we don't obviously go through the process of asking forgiveness and all those actions, there will be an accountability for it. You know, to the point where even if you look at Imam Ali salam in Najul Balagha, he talks about the fact that had he been told that you could have authority over the entire world and all you need to do is take a grain of rice out of the mouth of an ant, he says, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't even do dhulam to an ant, that small little insignificant creature that you and I maybe step on a million of them in the, every day in the summer. He says, if you told me to take a grain of, uh, of, of wheat or rice from his mouth, and you would be given power over the entire world. He says, I wouldn't do that. Imagine the level of justice of that man that he would not even do injustice to a tiny little insect the size of an ant. So that's about recognizing that we are accountable on the day of judgment. That's why almost a third of the Quran is about that topic. From there, the next largest topic, about 24%, is about the mission of the prophets of Allah. Nabi Adam you got Nabi Nuh, you've got Ibrahim, his sons Ismail and Ishaq, 
You've got Musa, Harun, you've got tri uh, prophets from the tribes of Israel, although they're not all mentioned by name in the Quran. You've got obviously Prophet Jesus, you've got like, Nabi Yunus, Hud, Saleh, Nabi uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. And their story is spread out in, through the entire Quran. It's interwoven with other ayat, with stories. You'll find the story of Musa and Pharaoh in many chapters, in different uh, instances of what is happening. Sometimes the story is repeated, almost verbatim, word for word, from another part of the Quran. Now, it's not that Allah couldn't think about other things to put in the Quran and to fill this book with. No, but by Him giving us all of these past prophets and their adversaries and the ups and downs of life, He's showing us an important lesson to learn from these men of God. And obviously there are other people mentioned like Luqman, a chapter named after him. He was a, a black man from Ethiopia, not a prophet according to most scholars. But although not a prophet, he was a man of wisdom and Allah dedicates an entire chapter to him and his beautiful discussion with his son. You know, a lot of times fathers come and say, I can't talk to my child. How do I get into my son and be able to speak and communicate with him? Well, look at Surah Luqman. You know, we need to do a tafsir of that entire surah. Maybe one day it will be done. But you see the father-son relationship, how a father can open up and talk to his son. Right? And that doesn't happen when your son is 18 years old. You say, come on, son, let's go and talk. No, the father has to be there with his son from the day that the child is born. Not that dad is too busy making money, traveling the world, and the son is being brought up by the mother or other people in the family. No, the father has to be there. Being a father doesn't mean you know how to make a baby. That can be done in a test tube. The being a father is you're there for your son. You're there to help him play hockey when he hits his first home run, when he's there to slam dunk the basketball. You're there as a father every stage of the way. Then you can be like Luqman when you say, Ya Bunaya, la tushrik billah. Oh my son, don't associate partners with Allah. Because now your son knows you as your father, as the father. And he has that close relationship and you can talk to him and he will open up to you. So prophets are a large part of the Quran and their story with not only the community but even their families. The next part of the Quran, about 12%, makes up a large discussion of Muslim interaction with Jews and Christians. Interfaith dialogue, we do this in the world today. It's done in many communities. Many communities I've been to, in the month of Ramadan, they'll even host an interfaith iftar. They'll call their neighbors, they'll call their religious leaders of the Christian, the Jewish communities, especially because we see eye to eye with them on God. And we'll sit and have food together and they can come and listen and learn from us. We can go to their house of worship and learn from them. But the point being is that the Quran stressed upon relationship with other communities. We can't exist in a bubble, in a vacuum, that it's only me. It's only the Husseini Association and nothing else matters. No, when you live in Canada, multicultural society, we have people of all religions, we have to interact with other people. Let them know who we are, that we are Muslims, we follow the Ahlul Bayt. These are our teachings. They might not convert, but that's not the point. Allah will convert the heart. Our job is to give the message. And then the small, one of the smallest parts, again, I, I haven't mentioned all of the breakdowns. Akhlaq is a part of the Quran. History of others is a part of the Quran. 
But one of the smallest areas the Quran speaks about is ahkam. Praying, fasting, hajj, khum, zakat, jihad, amil bil ma'roof, nahyanil munkar, all of the ahkam. That's only 500 verses at maximum in the Quran. And that number 500 is given to us by the ulama. They say there are anywhere from 300 to 500 ayat about ahkam, jurisprudence. Now we place so much emphasis on ahkam and we need to learn how to pray, how to fast properly. But imagine Allah only used 7% of the Quran to discuss the fiqh of Islam. It's important. But it's not as important as knowing Allah because if you don't know Allah, why are you praying? Right? Who are you praying to? If you don't know your creator, if you don't know your prophet, do you know that the prophet prayed like this or that or did this or that? You don't know. So ahkam is the last of, in terms of, let's say, the percentages, but it also ties our connection to Allah. But it definitely should never be overshadowed by everything else which is in the Qur'an. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. As we move on, I want to give us five verses of the Qur'an in which Allah gives us five aspects of the word of Allah. How to understand the book of Allah. In chapter 21, Surah Al-Anbiya, verse number 50, Allah says, وَهَذَا ذِكْرٌ مُبَارَكٌ أَنزَلْنَا أَفَأَنْتُمْ لَهُ مُنْكِرُونَ And this is a blessed reminder which we have revealed. Will you then deny it? The key word here is dhikr mubarak. It is a blessed reminder. What is a reminder? A reminder is something that reminds you of something that you already knew, but you forgot about it, right? When you tell your son or daughter, you call them up or you text them, I'm reminding you when you get home, do this, this, and this. I'm reminding you, Ali, when you get home, take out the garbage. You know, do the dishes, clean your room. It's a reminder. That means you've told them already once before, or they know what they have to do. Your children have a list of chores to do when they get home from school, but you'll still follow up with a text message or a call, just reminding you to do these things, in case you forgot it. Allah calls the Qur'an a dhikr, because the content of the Qur'an is not new. right? This is things that we know. We might not remember it because we may have been taught these in the world before we came into this world. There were multiple uh, realms or multiple worlds before we come here in the physical. And we were taught certain things. We went through certain processes in other worlds, other realms. But Allah is saying that what I'm telling you is, is a reality that you already should know. It's not, a, it's not a secret, right? You know, we have this concept that every child is born on the fitrah. As the hadith says, that kullu mawlud yuladu ala fitratihi. And it's their parents, every child is born on human nature of belief in one God. But it's their parents that convert them to Christianity or Judaism or become idol worshippers. There's a concept, and there's actually a book written by a non-Muslim uh, medical doctor, if I'm not mistaken. I have it back home in Ontario. The book is called Born Believers. And he's trying to prove from his academic scientific research that children when they're born and they come into this world they are born as people who believe in God and then they go their different paths maybe you can find this at the local library if you're interested in it or online so this is a reminder the Quran is reminding you and I about akhlaq about Allah about 
the day of judgment, about nubuwat, about all of these things, this is just reminding us. It's not anything new that we haven't learnt before. Maybe we just forgot it in the rat race of life. Number two from the Qur'an is the Qur'an introduces itself in chapter 38, Surah Su'ad, verse 29, where Allah says, Kitabun anzalnahu ilayka mubarakun liyadabbaru ayatihi waliyatadhakkara ulul albab. It is a book we have revealed to you. Again, it is abounding and good. It is Mubarak. And that they may ponder upon its verses. Engage in the act of tadabbur, thinking about the ayat of the Qur'an. And that those endowed with understanding may be mindful of it. Again, this is one of the major issues that we always need to keep in the forefront of our mind, brothers and sisters, that the Qur'an is a book to reflect upon, to read, and try and understand the content. We won't understand certain ayat. So for example, Huruf al-Muqatta'at, as we've talked about, you and I will never understand that. No matter how much you and I sit and reflect, that, those ayat are impossible. The example I gave you in chapter number 2, Surah Al-Baqarah, about Mulk al-Sulaiman. A million possibilities. We may never get to understand the entire verse before we leave this world. But there are many other ayat that you and I can read and reflect upon, try and join verses together, try and engage in a thematic reflection of the Qur'an. And you know, this doesn't have to be a private endeavor. You know, there are communities, again, I've been to, where a group of brothers get together every week and sisters have their own gatherings, where let's say four or five guys will get together and they'll all be assigned a reading from the Qur'an. And then they'll all go and do their own research. And especially if the group is diverse, if they all understand different languages, they can go to their own books in Arabic or Farsi or Urdu or whatever language, look at different commentaries and get together every, let's say, Friday night, Saturday night for an hour and discuss what they've read. So, okay, in Urdu, I read this commentary. In Arabic, this is available. In Al-Mizan, he says this. And everybody sits and they, you get together, you have a meal together. You discuss the Qur'an, people have different ideas, you've heard other lectures, you've read articles. This is one way where you're not putting the burden on yourself alone, but everybody shares in the learning process. Do you need to have a scholar there? Ideally, yes, to guide the discussion so it doesn't become you know, completely off topic. But if not, at least people get together and you know, presume that these are, or you know, look at possible theories of what these ayat could mean. A good way to engage in reflective contemplation on the Qur'an. That's one possibility that can be done. But the goal, again, is to reflect on the Qur'an. From here in part 3, I, I, this, men, this verse comes from chapter number 6, Surah Al-An'am, verse 19. Allah says, وَأُوْحِيَ إِلَيَّ هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ not changing, but I think that's coming. It says, وَأُوْحِيَ إِلَيَّ هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ لِأُنْذِرَكُمْ بِهِ وَمَنْ بَلَغَ and this Qur'an has been revealed to me, the Prophet is speaking, that with it I may warn you and whoever it reaches. So here the Prophet is telling us that this Qur'an was revealed to him, that he may warn us. He may warn us of what? Of the punishment of hell is one warning. And that's usually the, you know, that's usually the best way to, to get to a person is to scare them into submission. But God doesn't want us to be afraid of Him and, and submit. But these are ways, as I've mentioned before, that when we learn 
When we are introduced to punishment, we follow the laws, and hopefully it gets to a level where no, it's no longer just following because of punishment, it's following out of love of Allah. But a warning is, is, a, is a very easy or very good way to get us to change. You know, the example that I've probably given before is when you drive on the highway, the speed limit might say 100 kilometers, 110 on the highway. If you're doing 120, 130, 140, you know very well that if you get caught by a police, you'll get a speeding ticket. Some provinces, they impound your car. You'll get multiple demerits, a large fine. Why don't they just put up a sign, don't speed, it's better not to, right? Be a good human being, don't speed in Canada. Because they know we wouldn't listen to that. So you have to have speed limit, you have to have penalties. You have to have red light cameras. You have to have speeding cameras in the city. Why? Because people speed and we don't always recognize the repercussions. We don't think about if I speed, maybe I'll run over a kid who's playing in the playground. Maybe if I jump a red light, I'll hit a person you know, walking across the street and there are major consequences. So there have to be penalties in society. And eventually you'll get to a point where I'll recognize, look, I shouldn't speed because now I recognize what will happen if I speed? And there's you know, campaigns they'll have on TV, don't drink and drive and don't do this and don't do that. They will then begin to touch at our emotion and then we don't need the warnings. I won't care about the fine. I'll be more concerned about hurting a human being. So look at the warnings of the Quran in that way, not as a penalty or a fine or a punishment. No, Allah wants us to recognize when we sin, we're hurting other people. When we sin, we're hurting ourselves, actually, at the, at the, at the per first level. And why would I want to do something to hurt myself when I know that I'm going to suffer the consequences, right? So Allah says this is the Quran to warn you, to give you that admonition, that indhar, that we all need to wake up sometimes. Number four is from chapter 14, Surah Ibrahim, the very first verse. Allah says, Alif Lam Ra, again the Huruf Muqatta'at, Kitabun Anzal Nahu Ilaik. This is a book which we have revealed to you. Litukhrija Nasa min al Dulumati ila Nur bi idni Rabbihim ila Sirat al Aziz al Hamid. This is a book which we have revealed to you by, by your Lord's permission, by their Lord's permission, that may bring you forth, that may bring forth humanity from utter darkness into light. From the dhulumat into the nur, to the way of the mighty, the praised one. Here the Quran is being portrayed as a book of guidance, as a way for you and I to come out of the dhulumat, the levels of darkness that we get enveloped in. You know, we get involved in the material world, we go to school, we work, we get caught in the whole materialistic lifestyle, we get caught into sins, you know, or we get caught even in just in the, in the dunya, not even in, in sin, but even permissible things. We get busy with our Netflix and YouTube and we get busy with Spotify and all of these things that we forget about Allah. And that gradually can lead to a stage of complete ghafla, of negligence of Allah in every aspect of our lives. So Allah tells the Prophet, this book has been revealed by your Lord to bring humanity out of the darknesses, the dhulamat, into the light, into the one light of Allah. And once you enter to the light, and you're allowing the light of Allah to permeate your being, then obviously sins 
have no meaning because then you don't need that. You don't need those sins. You have Allah. Then everything comes into play in life. The way you treat your spouse, your children, everything becomes uh, balanced because now you're living your life based on the balanced teachings of the nur, of, of the light of Allah in the Quran. And in that aura of living in light and obviously dying in light, having a qabr full of light and being in the company of the light. That is the Prophet and Ali Muhammad والسلام, in the Day of Judgment. Sallu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. So again, another very practical role of the Quran, not as a screensaver or, a, or whatever, is to guide us to the light. And you know, guidance cannot come if we don't understand the word of Allah. Right? If we don't know Arabic, the first priority should be to learn Arabic. That's the priority in our lives. Yes, we learn Urdu, great. You can speak to your grandparents back home. You can go back to Karachi and shop and bargain with people in Urdu, great. You need to learn Farsi to go back home and, and shop and get a hotel, fine. You need to learn whatever other language is okay, that's great. But Arabic should be a priority in our community. And sadly, it's not. Not here. I'm saying across the board, North America, everywhere I've seen, Arabic is not taught at a level where at least at the minimum to learn Quranic Arabic. I don't say become you know, completely fluent in Arabic that you can, have a, you can deliver a lecture or you know, understand speakers on the, on the internet in Arabic. At least the Arabic of the Quran, which is very easy to learn. There are actually very amazing apps on your smartphone that you can learn a couple of words a day. And within the course of a year or so, you can learn all of the Arabic of the Quran. Right? At least at the minimum, our institutions, our centers need to encourage the teaching of Arabic of the Quran. Because as I showed you of three or four nights ago, in that verse where Allah talked about those who had, uh, as He uses this word, tawalla. Now did it mean they had authority on the earth or did it mean that they changed? One word can change the entire meaning of a verse. Right? You look at 10 different comment, uh, translations of the Quran in any language and you'll get 10 different meanings. Now what, is, what, what does Allah want me to know? I don't know. Because every translation is different. But if you know Arabic, at least you'll have a better understanding of the, what Allah has intended. You might not be perfectly fluent in that verse, but you'll know some of the nuances of it. So again, this becomes a, a needs to be a priority in our lives to learn Arabic, to read the Quran in that, to reflect on the ayat in the way that Allah revealed it. And then if we can't, then you go to commentaries, you go to translations, and you move down that path. The fifth way the Quran introduces itself is found in chapter 17, verse 82. And I've just chosen five verses. There are tens of verses like this in the Quran, maybe even hundreds of verses I could have brought, but I'm limiting it. Allah says, وَنُنَزِّلُ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ مَا هُوَ الشِّفَاءٌ وَرَحْمَةٌ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَلَا يَزِيدُ ظَالِمِينَ إِلَّا خَسَارًا And we reveal of the Quran that which is a healing and a mercy to the believers. And it only adds to the perdition, the loss of the unjust, of the dhalimin. So here Allah is telling us that the Quran is a shifa, is a way to be healed, is a rahma, is a mercy from Allah. This book, as we know, is 
a guidance for all of humanity, but if you don't want the guidance, you won't get it. Right? When it's sunny outside, if these blinds are up, no sunlight will come in because you don't want the sun to come in. But if you want the sun to come in, you'd lift up the blinds and you'd allow or you'd remove the curtain and the sun would begin to fill the room. Similar as the Qur'an, if you don't want the guidance, the shifa, the rahmah of the Qur'an, it's still going to be there, but you won't get it, because you don't want it in your life. Right? The kuffar don't want it, the munafikin didn't want it. But when you say, Ya Allah, you make that pledge to Allah, that Ya Allah, I want the rahmah that you have of the Qur'an, I want the shifa, the cure, then it'll come. It's not a shifa in terms of physical, you know. It's not that I have a sore back and I read Quran and I'll get better. No, you need to go to your chiropractor for that. It's not a cure for mental health issues. You know, people say, he's got mental health issues, just read the Quran, you'll be okay. Right? The Quran says, Allah bi dhikrillahi tatma'innul kulub, with the remembrance of God, the hearts are at rest. But that's ridiculous to say that the Quran can cure people who have serious mental health issues. No, you go to your mental health experts. If you have to take medication, that's what's needed. Don't come and say the Quran says it's a shifa, and so I don't need medication. Well then why are you on blood thinner? Why are you on diabetes medication? Why are you going to the doctor when you get sick? Why do we take the vaccine for COVID? We can say the Quran is a shifa. I don't need medication. Doctors would be out of a job, probably. No more hospitals, right? But no, we're not that simple-minded. We don't think like that as Muslims. And we should never think that, oh, I just trust in God and I pray and everything will be good. No. The Prophet even told us, even there are various hadith of other Prophets, where Allah, where a Prophet of Allah, a Nabi of Allah would get sick, and he would say, I'm going to pray to Allah for my shifa. And Allah would prolong his sickness. And Allah would say, your job is to go to your local doctor. Allah would tell the prophets of God that yes, I give the shifa, but the doctor is the one I use to get that. So even today, when I take my medication every morning, and I take my, my cocktail of pills, I say, Ya Allah, allow my shifa to be in these pills that the pharmacists have overcharged me for. <laughs> You know, because pills are overpriced. But I say, Ya Allah, allow my shifa to be in this medication today. You get a headache, Ya Allah, allow this Tylenol, this acetaminophen, to cure my headache. Don't say, yes, you know, Tylenol will cure my headache. No, Allah will cure your headache. But the shifa is in the medication He's given the experts to create. Allah gave us intellect, He gave us people who become physicians who become people who are experts in, in, the, in the process of being able to create this medication. Allah gave them that talent. And Allah says the medicine is in that pill. Yes, come to the door of Allah, make dua, pray to Allah, go to hajj, go to ziyarat, make dua, read, make ta'biz, make duas, but recognize that the doctor is the one who will provide that antidote. But there are times, and you and I have seen this, people go to the haram, of Imam Radha alayhi salam, where they go to Karbala, and they make, make dua to Allah through the Imam. And there are people who walked, who went into the haram in a wheelchair, 
as a paraplegic and they, and they leave walking on their own two feet. So we don't doubt the miracle of du'a, brothers and sisters. Don't get me wrong. Du'as have a miraculous nature. You know, there's a friend of ours right now in ICU in Vancouver, in his 80s, admitted last week, and basically his family was texting me, make du'a for him, make du'a for him, and everybody around the world has been praying, and they didn't think he's going to make it. The other day, his son-in-law texted me, and he says that the doctors have said his recovery is nothing short of a miracle. We attribute it to du'as. Right? They say it's a miracle, whatever that means. But they probably believe in a God somewhere. But if everything the doctors are trying to do in the ICU ward are not bringing this man back, and they, they think he's, gonna, he's not going to make it, and yet the collective dua of the ummah, he's changed, he's recovering, he's almost going to be out of ICU, inshallah. How do we attribute this? If the doctors say, we can't do anything else, well, what happened in that... 72 hours or whatever time frame. <coughs> Something had to change in the world that made this man recover. That's du'as. I remember, and I'll move on with this, I remember in one of the hospitals in Qom, actually it was in one of the, uh, one of the clinics of uh, the late Ayatollah Jawad Tabrizi, they had a sign over the door of the hospital, and it said, Ad-dawa indana, ashifa indallah. The medication comes from us, the cure comes from Allah. And this should be our thought process, brothers and sisters. Maybe we have to have this emblazoned on our medicine cabinet at home. Right? The medicine is from the pharmacy, but the cure comes from Allah. Right? Remember Allah that He is the one who gives the shifa. We conclude with one more, uh, couple of one more point. And this is a statement once it comes on screen uh, from Ayatollah Al-Uthmanasim Makarim Shirazi, one of our grand scholars in the city of Qum. He's written over a hundred books without a doubt, probably maybe over 200 by now, multiple commentaries of the Quran, thematic, chronological. He's done a 40 or 20 or 30 volume commentary of Najul Balagha. And he has this quote when he speaks about the Quran and its madhulumiyat in our community. He says the Quran must be included in the program of life of Muslims and they must carry out its instructions and harmonize their entire life with its contents. He says, but unfortunately the treatment of the Quran by some is incomprehensible. They only occasionally recite it, and even then only focus on the rules of tajweed, the pronunciation of the letters and the beauty of their voice. And most of the problems which the Muslim community are facing stems from this. Again, he's a marjatak lead, 28 volume tafsir of the Quran called Tafsir Namuna, He's written a thematic commentary of the Qur'an, 10 volumes, 10 volumes of akhlaq in the Qur'an, and many more. He says, the Muslims have removed the Qur'an from its role as the book to provide them a comprehensive plan of life and are merely satisfied with reciting its words. Right from the top, our ulama are telling us that we as Muslims, Iranians, Arabs, Iraqis, Afghanis, Pakistanis, Indians, Khojas, all of us, we've abandoned the Qur'an. We just read it and that's all. We don't think about it. And so we have to get into a process of reintroducing ourselves to the Qur'an, which is the goal of tonight to hopefully get us to be able to want to read and reflect and learn the Qur'an. I'll end with this last quote from Imam Ali alayhi salam. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad.
This is the khutbah of Hammam, sermon 193. He says, talking about the people of Taqwa. During the night, they, the pious, stand on their feet, reading portions of the Qur'an, reciting in a well-measured way, creating an aura of grief in themselves. Through it, they seek a cure, a shifa, for their spiritual ailments. And then the Mawla says, when they come across the verse creating eagerness for paradise, they pursue it avidly, and their spirits turn toward it eagerly, and they feel as if it, Jannah, is in front of them. And when they come across a verse which contains the fear of hell, they bend, they bend focus the ears of the heart toward it, and they feel as though the sound of hell and its cries are reaching their ears. We have to be at that level, brothers and sisters, where the Quran permeates our heart like this.